Thank you, choir. Thank you, Pastor Edgar. Thank you for leading us into the presence of the Lord this morning. You know, I think sometimes we take for granted all that God has provided for us in the church, the music, the talent, our people. Many of you go away and you come back to Grace Point and you just tell us how much you appreciate the music and Pastor Edgar. And, and we're always glad to hear those stories. Well, I'm getting my balance back. It's not quite uncanny yet, but uh, I'm almost there. It's good to be out of that boot and walking and in, both, in two shoes this morning. Today we're looking, we're continuing our study uh, with Jesus, a journey through Lent. And today we're looking at the story of the Samaritan woman, and the title of this morning's message is With Jesus at the Well. You'll find this story in John chapter 4, so turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 4. How many of you brought your Bibles with you today? Just kind of raise those up. It's great to see those Bibles, electronic versions alike. It's good to see those. John chapter 4. The story of the Samaritan woman occurs shortly after Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus. You see, she was all that Nicodemus was not. He was a Jew, and she was a Samaritan. Two groups of people who really despised one another. He was a man of great privilege, and because she was a woman, she had no privilege. He was a man who was highly educated. Because she was a woman, she would have not received a formal education. He was morally upright, and she was morally compromised. He was wealthy and from the upper class of society. She was poor and likely an outcast of society. Nicodemus was serious and dignified when he had his encounter with Jesus. When Jesus met the Samaritan woman, I imagine she was quite nervous. I imagine that she probably was overwhelmed with a man speaking to her. And it was obvious that this man was Jewish. So when she spoke back, she may have responded in a flippant or boisterous way. It's hard for us to imagine a greater contrast than between Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman. Between these two personalities. But this contrast is indicative of God's love for you and God's love for me. For God loves us all. Whether we deserve it or not, God loves us all. Jew and Gentile. Bond and free. Slave and free. Male and female. Red and yellow, black and white, we are all precious in His sight. This contrast reminds us of God's love for mankind, God's love for you, and God's love for me. Now, I have a pop quiz for you. There are five things on the PowerPoint here. What do these have in common? Time's up. What are they? They're all enemies of one another, aren't they? 
Every Star Trek fan knows that the arch enemy of the Federation is the Klingons. Of course, the Philistines constantly were in battle with the Israelites. Corolla DeVille, well, all dog, all dog lovers hate Corolla DeVille. And of course, the Sheriff of Nottingham, he was a constant thorn in the flesh for Robin Hood. Well, the Samaritans despised the Jews. They couldn't stand one another. This battle had gone on for hundreds and hundreds of years. They were like the Hatfields and the McCoys on steroids. And to understand why they hated each other so much, we really need to go back. Go back, clear back to Joshua. Remember when we talked about Joshua when we had that sun stand still prayer? Well, Joshua led the people of Israel across the Jordan River. And then they began to conquer the promised land. And after they had conquered the promised land, then that land was divided between the 12 tribes of Israel. Well, in about 722 B.C., there was a king, an Assyrian king, by the name of Sargon, who conquered the northern part of Israel. And he did something very unique. Uh, in his conquest, to keep his conquest, he divided up the people, and he sent part of them other to new territories. So he sent the Jewish people away from their homeland to new ter- territories, and he brought Gentiles in to live in their home. And he mixed these two groups of people together. And this way he could disrupt their life and kind of reorganize their lives. And he encouraged them to adopt one another's uh, practices, uh, their societal norms. He encouraged them to intermarry. And over time, in the generations, they did just that. Well, to those two tribes that remained in the southern part, of Israel that also were attacked by this Assyrian king by the name of Sargon, but they were able to withstand that attack, this was an abomination. The thought of marrying outside of your faith. I mean, we understand that, don't we? We understand that it's important that we marry within the faith so that we can be like-minded as husband and wife. And so they were so opposed to this. They stood strong against this Assyrian king. But then came King Nebuchadnezzar of the Babylonian Empire. And he was able to conquer the southern part of Israel. But it was a little bit different. You see, there was a guy by the name of Daniel. And and Daniel found favor along with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego with King Nebuchadnezzar. and, And the King Nebuchadnezzar allowed them to continue their practices to worship their God, and he didn't force them to intermarry, and so they were able to keep the purity of their Jewish uh, history and their Jewish nation together. Well, when the exile, when they began, the ex, when after they were exiled, they began to return home to Jerusalem, or all around about Ezra, Nehemiah, and, uh, that time, they began to rebuild the temple, the temple in Jerusalem. This was Solomon's temple, and. When they began to rebuild the Solomon's temple, some of the Samaritans came and they asked if they could be a part of that. Well, the Jews said, absolutely not. You've not kept yourself pure. You're not worshiping. You're worshiping multiple gods. You're not worshiping the same faith, the same God that we are worshiping. You will not have a part of rebuilding this temple. And so there was this bitterness between Samaritans and Jews. 
And so the Samaritans decide, well, we'll build our own temple. And they just, they just used the five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, as their books. They didn't take all the rest of the books. And, uh, and they kind of made up their own faith. And they worshipped near Jacob's well in a town called Sikkar. Uh, this was an area of Samaria. And so they built their own temple. And they built it on the site of the original tabernacle. And so there's a lot of history in this story, the story of why these two groups hate each other so much. Well, then about 129 B.C., uh, one of the generals of the Jewish army, he gathered together some men, and he went up north to Samaria. He couldn't take it anymore, their false religion, and he goes and destroys the temple of the Samaritans. It's as if they were establishing war. And so this bitterness just rages between the Samaritans and the Jews. And this is bitterness that Jesus encountered in his day. John chapter 4, verse 1. The Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. Jesus was growing in popularity. And his disciples now were baptizing more people than John the Baptist was baptizing. There began to be a little bit of conflict between the disciples of John the Baptist and and Jesus' disciples. And then, of course, there was the conflict between, you know, the Jews not being happy with Jesus. And so Jesus said, you know what, I'm going to leave Judea for a while and I'm going to go to 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 Galilee. Verse 3. When the Lord learned this, he left Judea and went back at once more to Galilee. Now, Galilee, you have to understand, is about 120 miles north. So the southernmost part of Judea to the northernmost part of Galilee, there's, it's 120 miles. So about from here to the uh, Indianapolis airport, that's probably about 100 miles, a little bit past that. That distance. Well, to, to walk it, if you were to walk it straight, it would be about a three-day journey. And, of course, Jesus was very poor. He didn't have a donkey. When he needed a donkey, he had to borrow a donkey. And so it was. A, they would walk on foot. And typically what a Jew would do is, because they hated the Samaritans so much, is they would go east towards the Jordan River and cross the Jordan. And then they would go north, avoiding Samaria, and then cross again back over the Jordan River West and then go north on to Galilee. This was the normal route. But the scripture tells us in chapter 4, verse 4 of chapter 4, now he had to go to Samaria. He didn't have to go. I mean, he could have taken the normal route. Most people take the normal route just to avoid the conflict. But the scripture says he had to go. Why did he have to go? Well, he had to go because he had a divine appointment with this woman at the well. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sikkar, near a plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. It's interesting that um, as you look at the story, there's all this history. Here we have... um, Jacob's well. If you remember the story when uh, 
Jacob passed away, he gave his property then to Joseph. And Joseph's dying request was that his body would be buried on that piece of property. So we have all this history. We have the original tabernacle and then, of course, the Samaritan tabernacle that was built there. We have Jacob's well that Jacob himself dug. We have the bones of Joseph buried in this place called Sikkar. And then verse 5. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sikkar near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Next verse. Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. And one of the main questions I'm going to ask you today, are you willing to sit for that divine appointment that God has for you? And our story begins. Let's watch the video. In Samaria, he came to a town named Sychar, which was not far from the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired out by the trip, sat down by the well. It was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to draw some water. Give me a drink of water. His disciples had gone into town to buy food. You're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan. So how can you ask me for a drink? Jews will not use the same cups and bowls that Samaritans use. If you only knew what God gives, then who it is that is asking you for a drink, you would ask him. And he would give you a life-giving water. Sir, you don't have a bucket and the well is deep. Where would you get that life-giving water? It was our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well. He and his children and his flocks all drank from it. You don't claim to be greater than Jacob, do you? Those who drink this water will get thirsty again. But those who drink the water that I will give them will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give them will become in them a spring which will provide them with life-giving water and give them eternal life. Sir, give me that water. Then I will never be thirsty again. Nor will I have to come here to draw water. Go and call your husband and come back. I don't have a husband. You're right when you say you don't have a husband. You've been married to five men and the man you live with now is not really your husband. You have told me the truth. You are a prophet, sir. My Samaritan ancestors worshipped God on this mountain. But you Jews say that Jerusalem is the place where we should worship God. Believe me, woman. The time will come when people will not worship the Father either on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans do not really know whom you worship. But we Jews know whom we worship because it is from the Jews that salvation comes. But the time is coming. And is already here. When by the power of God's Spirit, 
people will worship the Father as he really is, offering him the true worship that he wants. God is spirit, and only by the power of his spirit can people worship him as he really is. I know that the Messiah will come, and when he comes, he will tell us everything. I am he. I who am talking with you. At that moment, Jesus' disciples returned, and they were greatly surprised to find him talking with a woman. But none of them said to her, What do you want? Or asked him, Why are you talking with her? Then the woman left her water jar and went back to the town. Come and see the man who told me everything I've ever done. Could he be the Messiah? So they left the town and went to Jesus. In the meantime, the disciples were begging Jesus, Teacher, have something to eat. But he answered, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. So the disciples started asking among themselves, Could somebody have brought him food? My food is to obey the will of the one who sent me, and to finish the work he gave me to do. You have a saying. Four more months and then the harvest. But I tell you, take a good look at the fields. The crops are now ripe and ready to be harvested. The one who reaps the harvest is being paid and gathers the crops for eternal life. So the one who plants and the one who reaps will be glad together. For the saying is true. Someone plants, someone else reaps. I have sent you to reap the harvest in a field where you did not work. Others work there. And you profit from their work. Many of the Samaritans in that town believed in Jesus because the woman had said, He told me everything I have ever done. So when the Samaritans came to him, they begged him to stay with them. And Jesus stayed there two days. Many more believed because of his message. And they told the woman, we believe now, not because of what you said, but because we ourselves have heard him. And we know that he really is the savior of the world. Turn with me back into your scriptures to John chapter 4, verse 7. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? It's amazing, this story, when you think about it. Jesus, God himself, God became man, and he asked this woman, this woman who's quite broken, will you give me a drink? Jesus himself, the creator of the universe, made himself vulnerable to this woman. He said, I have need of something from you. He started the conversation not by saying, I know all about you, but simply by asking, can you give me a drink? He sat at the well and he asked the question. He made himself vulnerable to this woman. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? You see, in this encounter, Jesus breaks three customs of the Jewish tradition. 
First, he spoke to a woman. A rabbi would never speak to a woman in public. He would not speak to his wife or to his sister or even to his daughter in public. To do so would be a disgrace. Also, she was a Samaritan. And there was this great divide between Jews and Samaritans, and they would not speak to one another. Third, he asked her for a drink. And we have to understand, he asked that a Samaritan would take her cup and provide him a drink, which would have made him ceremonially unclean. And so this encounter starts out really in a magnificent way as Jesus sits at the well for that divine appointment. And he makes himself vulnerable to this woman. Will you give me a drink? Verse 10. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Jesus offers this woman living water. Now let me ask you a question. How much sand would someone have to consume to quench their thirst? How much sand would someone have to consume to quench their thirst? Kind of looks like a mocha, doesn't it? But it's actually sand. Well, the answer is, that's, well, that's absurd. Sand will never quench your thirst. But how often... Do we try to quench our thirst with other things and everything but God? Here was this woman at the well. She was trying to quench her thirst with relationships. She had five husbands, and the man that she was with was not her husband. It's hard to understand how she must have been an outcast, and yet she was searching For happiness in someone else. How many of us are like the woman at the well and we try to quench our thirst in relationships? We find ourselves enmeshed in a relationship and if somebody walks away from that relationship, we collapse and we fall on our face because our happiness, our joy, everything in life is based upon that relationship. How many of us try to quench our thirst in our children, in our families. Our happiness is dependent upon investing and living through vicariously these children in our families. And while these are good things, they will never replace living water. How many of us try to quench our thirst in society with drugs and and alcohol? Spending your nights in a lonely place with a group of friends who are trying to quench their thirst with a different liquid, but a liquid that does not bring living water or eternal life or peace. How many of us try to quench our thirst with achievement? You see, we can earn great success. We can accomplish many things. We can have Initials put behind our name, but the achievement itself will never replace the living water 
And so it's like drinking sand. It's always hollow. How many of us try to replace the living water with wealth or prosperity? For me, as a teenager, it was that I was kind of a thrill junkie. I, I, uh, it wasn't that I didn't, wasn't a fan of Jesus. I was. I, I believed in Jesus. I, I knew that He was the Son of God. I knew that He died for our sins. But I was just too busy. I would work at the summers at a Boy Scout camp. And, and at that camp, I would uh, teach rowing and canoeing and sailing and, and swimming. And I was a lifeguard. It was a great job for eight weeks every summer. I would go to this camp and live on the lake, and it was a wonderful time. And then I would go home and skydive on the weekends, and, and then, of course, ski in the wintertime. I was kind of a thrill junkie. But it's like drinking sand. All the thrills in the world will not replace the living water. Jesus offered to the woman at the well living water. Eternal life, water that is fresh and clean, and it's only that water that will quench our thirst. And Jesus offers to you and to me living water. Think about that, will you? God loves you. He knows you. And He loves you anyway. Verse 13, Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, speaking of just the water. But whoever drinks of the water I give him will never thirst. A couple of weeks ago, I sat with Sarah in a room on a Monday with the realization that her time was probably short, and she began to talk about the peace of God that passes all understanding. She's a three-year-old and a four-year-old, and life doesn't make sense, and it's hard to understand all this. And yet, living water was real to her. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of well, water welling up to eternal life. Jesus offers to you and to me this living water. Water that quenches our soul. Water that quenches our longing for a relationship with God. God who created each of us. You see, the truth is Jesus knows your story. Just like the woman at the well. Jesus knows your story. He understands you. He loves you. And just as this woman at the well, who was an outcast in society, was loved by God, you are loved by God as well. She was despised by many. And yet God sat there at the well in the form of a man and extended grace to her. And he extends grace to you and to me. He knew her. He loved her. He knew her story. And his desire was to give her something that wasn't temporal, 
but that was eternal, living water. Verse 25, the woman said, I, I, I know that the Messiah is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am him. It's interesting for us to note that in this story, that this is the very first time in the gospel that Jesus speaks of himself as the Messiah. Actually, it's the only time that Jesus speaks of himself as the Messiah before his trial. Think about that for a moment. Here was Jesus sitting at a well for a divine appointment. And the first person he reveals himself to was a woman. Not only that, she was a Samaritan. I don't know about you, but that speaks volumes to me. When I was in college, I had a professor. Her name was Laura Donahoe. Some of you probably know Laura. She's an amazing woman. She was a, a PE, taught PE classes. She was our athletic director, just a phenomenal leader at Mount Vernon. And then she was at Olivet for a while, as a, maybe the AD there, but uh, just an amazing lady. While we were there, um, there was a basketball player who was struggling academically. And for one reason or another, he wasn't able to come back. And we were talking about that. And Laura said, you know, I heard that he's not here. And I said, what do you mean? And then she said, well, we need him. I said, what do you mean? We're stronger because we have each other. That spoke volumes to me. You see, I was that student who struggled. I was that student who felt like he was academically challenged. And, and I realized on that day she was my advocate, that she was doing all that she could to help me succeed and, and that we needed each other. On that day, Jesus spoke volumes to you and to me. When he stood up for the least of the least, for in God's kingdom, the last shall be first and the first shall be last. And he loves you. And through this story, he speaks volumes to you and to me about his love. So it's interesting to note that the first person that Jesus reveals the reality that he is the Messiah was a woman, a Samaritan, the least of the least. Verse 27, just then the disciples returned and were surprised to find him take, talking to a woman. Then they, the woman went back into the town, the scripture says. And then, then he said, come. And she said, come and see a man who told me everything about my life. Of course, in the scripture, we just have a paraphrase of what actually happened here. And they came out of the towns to meet Jesus. Jesus reminded his disciples at that moment, verse 35, Do not say four more months, then the harvest. I tell you, open your eyes. Look at the fields. They are ripe unto harvest. They are ripe 
and the harvest. As the Samaritans were coming out, as they, they were expressing their own brokenness, as they were in seeking of, of this living water that Jesus was offering to this woman, he points out to his disciples, look, you said four more months than the harvest, but I tell you, look at the fields. They are ripe unto harvest. I'm afraid that far too often we say four more months and then the harvest and fail to look around that the fields are already ripe. My question to you is this. Are you willing to sit down at a well to be vulnerable to someone else, to earn the right to speak into their life, to invest in them, for the fields are ripe unto harvest. What are those divine appointments that God has for you this day, this week? Open your eyes. The fields are ripe unto harvest. You see, God knows their needs. God knows your needs. We're going to look at a modern day uh, illustration of this woman at the well right now on the video. I am a woman of no distinction, of little importance. I am a woman of no reputation save that which is bad. You whisper as I pass by and cast judgmental glances, though you don't really take the time to look at me or even get to know me. For to be known is to be loved, and to be loved is to be known, and otherwise what's the point in doing either one of them in the first place? I want to be known. I want someone to look at my face and not just see two eyes, a nose, a mouth, and two ears, but to see all that I am and could be, all my hopes, loves, and fears. That's too much to hope for, to wish for, or pray for, so I don't, not anymore. Now I keep to myself, and by that I mean the pain that keeps me in my own private jail, the pain that's brought me here at midday to this well. To ask for a drink is no big request, but to ask it of me, a woman unclean, ashamed, used and abused, an outcast, a failure, a disappointment, a sinner. No drink passing from these hands to your lips could ever be refreshing, only condemning, as I'm sure you condemn me now, but you don't. You're a man of no distinction, though of the utmost importance, a man with little reputation, at least so far. You whisper and tell me to my face what all those glances have been about, and you take the time to really look at me, but don't need to get to know me for to be known is to be loved, and to be loved is to be known, and you know me, you actually know me, all of me and everything about me, every thought inside and hair on top of my head, every hurt stored up, every hope, every dread, my past and my future, all I am and could be, you tell me everything, you tell me about me. And that which is spoken by another would bring hate and condemnation. Coming from you brings love, grace, mercy, hope, and salvation. I've heard of one to come who would save a wretch like me. And here in my presence, you say I am he. To be known is to be loved. And to be loved is to be known. And I just met you, but I love you. I don't know you, but I want to get to. Let me run back to town. This is way too much for just me. There are others, brothers, sisters, lovers, haters, the good and the bad, sinners and saints, who should hear what you've told me, who should see what you show me, who should taste what you gave me, who should feel how you forgave me. For to be known is to be loved. And to be loved is to be known. And they all need this too. We all do need it for our own. Jesus loves you. He knows you. And he loves you. We're going to stand and sing the song, Fill My Cup, Lord. 
Maybe this morning you just want to pray that prayer. Lord, fill my cup. I know you know me. And I want all of you. I want living water that Pastor Rex spoke of. Maybe you've never accepted Christ. You're a fan of Jesus, but you're not a follower of Jesus. And, and you want to take of the cup and accept this gift of eternal salvation that God offers to you, the gift of salvation. He knows you and he loves you. The altars are open. It's a great place to meet with our Lord. We encourage you to come.